Everybody find yourself a seat. Here we are at the start of a new series on the book of Ephesians, and I am pumped. Like, I am so excited that I haven't been sleeping well the last three nights. You're like, what is wrong with you? It's just a new sermon series. That's how excited I've been. I'm losing sleep over this, and you're like, what, what's the big deal, Eddie? Well, here's the big deal. I fully believe that God has led us to this book at this time in this place. I, and I believe that with all my heart. And, um, you know, there's going to be things that maybe you've read before in the book of Ephesians that are going to start standing out to you as we walk through this book verse by verse. And uh, today we start a journey, and we don't exactly know where it's going to take us. Sure, we know we're going to start at the beginning of the book, we're going to end at the end of the book. We know that, but we don't know what's about to happen in each other's lives. You don't know the circumstances you're going to be in Tomorrow, two months, six months from now, we don't know what that's going to look like. I'm sure there's going to be some awesome things, and there's going to be some really difficult things. But what I'm excited about is because God's word is living and active, you're going to see how God will speak to you. He's going to speak to you as we walk through this series, and I completely believe that in faith. And I don't want to end up as the same person by the time we get to the end of this series. I, I want to be different. I want to be closer to God. I want to have a deeper love for him. I want to desire to worship him more as we go through the series. So here's what we're gonna to do tonight. First, I need to lay kind of some groundwork about the series, just kind of some general topics of why are we going about doing this series this way. Then, uh, then I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna study verses one and two. And that's all the time we're going to have for tonight, okay? So we're only going to make it two verses in, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, but that is the plan. Uh, let me start by saying I grew up as a pastor's kid, and when you're a pastor's kid, you hear more sermons than your average person by quite a bit, okay? Every Sunday, not allowed to miss church. <laughs> I was church, you know, every time I had to be there, uh, multiple sermons a week, conferences, all those things. So I've heard a lot of sermons and, you know, on top of that, side note, I've probably been to more women's conferences than most of the women in this room, okay? Because when you're a pastor kid, you help. You do whatever you, whatever's asked of you. So I've run sound, I've played for women's conferences, and that just kind of comes with the territory. But as I've heard all these sermons, I've learned a lot. Um, and, and I never went to school for learning how to preach or anything like that, but I learned just by listening to so many sermons and, uh, and there's different styles involved in preaching. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's my heart as far as preaching. Well, most of that comes from this passage in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul writing to Timothy, um, and he's giving him pastoral encouragement, pastoral advice. And it's significant because Paul is writing to Timothy, who is the pastor in, anybody know? Ephesus, actually. So the, he, Timothy is the pastor of the book of the church in the city that we're about to study. And here's what Paul says. I charge you, speaking to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's Paul's way of saying what I'm about to say is really, really important. All right, here it is, Timothy. And what does he lead with? His job as a pastor is preach the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Rebu reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then Paul predicts what's about to happen, and it says, for the time is coming 
When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Then he ends this by saying, as for you, let this be different for you, Timothy. Always be so reminded, have your head on straight, endure suffering, do the work of, of an evangelist, share the good news, and fulfill your ministry. That verse in the last slide where it says, um, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, I think that time has come. Uh, I think we live in these days, and I think Paul was exactly right. And here's what's happening is, as a preacher, there's this tension a little bit in the fact that I love you guys, and I want to preach things that are helpful and beneficial for you. That's the heart of every pastor, right? I want to help you guys. Um, but that can't be everything that drives me as a preacher. Uh, I can't build a whole ministry of preaching based off the things you guys would like to listen to, because that's not my job. My job is to preach the word. That's my job, preach the word. And so we can't build something that's only trying to attract people to come listen to things that they wanna listen to. <laughs> and uh, you know, I could easily just preach you know, the same topics over and over again with just a little different flavor, you know, dating, love, marriage, sex, all those things, and maybe this group would grow. I don't know, but that's not my goal here, okay? I have to obey the instructions. Just as Paul gives it to Timothy, I feel like the Lord's saying for any pastor, anyone who preaches, this is our job, preach the word. So I'm letting you a little bit behind the curtain here because there's different styles on how to preach the word as far as the, the method of doing that. The main three I think about, the first is topical series. And uh, this last series we just did, it was called It's Complicated, that was topical. That's one way to preach the word. Another way is uh, by doing it by means of overview. So if you were here uh, in the spring and in the winter at New Life Church, we did a, a series on the minor prophets. That would be an overview way of doing it. We spent one weekend per minor prophet, so it wasn't verse by verse and it wasn't topical. We were just going through each of the minor prophets. That's another way you can do it. And then the third way is the way we're gonna be doing this study, which is verse by verse. And uh, I would say all are valid ways of preaching. And we're gonna do all three of those styles at New Life Young Adults, but there's something special about verse, verse by verse that's really near and dear to my heart. So I just wanna share with you guys, why are we doing this? Here's the why behind going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. There's some strengths to doing this method. The first is that it helps you walk alongside the series. It's really easy for you to engage with the series because today we're doing verses one and two. Guess what next week is? We're starting at verse three, and then we'll go until the next chunk, and you know exactly what's coming. There's no secrets in the, in the series. You know exactly what's gonna happen, and so you guys have an opportunity to really lean in and, and live and breathe this series. Like, spend your time with the Lord knowing what's to come and, and looking back at what's already been said and start making notes, put little question marks, you know, in, in the margin of your Bible and see what the Lord teaches us as we go through the series. So that's why I like verse by verse. Second reason is that it teaches you how to study the Bible without you even realize that you're kind of learning how to study the Bible because you guys will start to notice as we go through the book that I'll, I'll repeat certain things. It's like, notice this, notice that. And, and over time, my hope is that you'll start to notice those things because I, I want you to know you guys can study the Bible without me. You don't need me 
to study the book of Ephesians. We're going to do this together, and it's going to be super fun. But I'm trying to show you some principles as we go through the book so that whenever you study the Bible, some of those things will start to pop up in your head. And that really is mostly accomplished as you teach books verse by verse. Third reason, and really why, um, my, my favorite reason, I would say, is that it pushes you to learn things outside your favorite topics. It pushes you to do that. And, and that's what we just talked about. If we just only want preaching that talks about our passions, the things we're excited about, um, we are not under sound teaching. And, and I want you guys to be under sound teaching. And so by preaching verse by verse, it's going to force me, whatever's in the book of Ephesians, that's what we're talking about. Uh, I don't get to just pick and choose like, oh, they'll love this or ah, I'll just skip that. I'm, I'm really just going to walk through the entire book. And that's why I like this, this method. Um, like I said, there's many methods, but that, this is one of the strengths of it. A couple possible downsides if you've never done this before, walk through a book verse by verse. I would say the two main ones are it can become a little too academic if I'm not careful where we can just like dissect everything and it kind of stops feeling like a, a sermon. It starts feeling a little bit more like a college lecture and I definitely don't want that to happen. Um, and, and the other possible downside is it can take way too long to get through a book. I know of a church that did the book of Ephesians, and they spent two weekends on one word in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do that. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. We're not going to do that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some strengths and weaknesses to all these methods. And honestly, tonight might feel a bit more academic than what we're used to. Why? Because it's a different method, okay? So just giving you fair warning, it's going to feel a little bit different, but I think that's totally fine. My commitment to you is to preach to the best of my ability in a way that makes this book come to life before your eyes. So I, I'm thinking less of, man, New Life Young Adults, we need to learn the book of Ephesians. I'm thinking more along the lines of, we need to live out the book of Ephesians, we need to find what's in here and apply it to our lives and look back at how we're different because we lived out what the book of Ephesians is all about. And this is why I'm calling this series Grace and Glory. I could have called it many, many different things. I chose the two words, grace and glory, because you will see that there are themes inside the book. There's many other themes inside the book. These aren't the only ones. But I chose grace and glory uh, because I believe it's a great way of viewing what the message of the book is. Grace and glory in this way. So here it is in a sentence. Grace in you, grace through you to the praise of his glory. This is what we're thinking about when I say grace and glory. And you're going to see this all throughout the book. So we're, we're seeing grace in you. This is what God has done for you. He, he has given you favor that you did not deserve, you did not earn. But it's not just that. It's grace through you. It's not something you just receive. It's something that you get to carry as well as a child of God. And uh, if, if you view the Christian life a bit more like all the things you need to do for God and to honor him, I don't think that's the best way of viewing the Christian life. I think the best way of viewing the Christian life is seeing that it's an opportunity for God to live through you. That's the Christian life. Because if you think it's all on you, you're going to just run out of steam pretty fast. But if you understand this is God living through you, then you understand where the power source is. It's God himself. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's grace through you. That's the Christian life. But what's the purpose of it all? First and foremost, to the praise of his glory. It's about God. It's about what he's doing. And we get to be a part of what he's doing. It's for his glory. Yes, we benefit absolutely. But we need to bring attention to the fact that this is first and foremost to the praise of his glory. 
So that's the series, Grace in You, Grace Through You, to the praise of his glory. And tonight we start with this first message I'm titling, How It Started, How It's Going. You guys know like how on Instagram everyone like posts something that's like how it started, how it's going. When I moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs Instagram loves doing this. They'll just like post some pioneer, you know, in, in Colorado Springs, and then it's like how, it's, how it started, how it's going. So that's kind of the idea. That's what we're going to do here for uh, this first two verses, how it started, and then we'll talk a, lot, a little bit about how it's going. But first, let me pray. All right? Here we go. Father, thank you. We really are thankful because we have your word. Um, here we are thousands of years after these things were spoken, and yet we still get to hear them, we still get to apply them, we still get to experience the ministry of your spirit, because the ministry of your word is the ministry of your spirit. So we just, we open our hearts, God, and we say, would, would you teach us, would you speak to us, would you breathe into us through this series? As we lean in, would you meet us here? And if you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, if you have your Bibles or pull it up on your phone. Um, verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So uh, verse 1 starts with the word Paul, and that's going to be the first point. We've got we to gotta talk about Paul. Who's this Paul guy? Let's talk about Paul. Um, this is Paul who used to be Saul, and uh, he was persecuting the church. Then he's radically converted to Christianity, and he is commissioned by Jesus himself to do his apostolic ministry. And Paul is the author of most of the New Testament, and the acceptance of this letter of the book of Ephesians as scripture is because of his direct connection to Jesus as an apostle. He was commissioned by Jesus, and so there's the authority that he was given to speak into the church. So he starts by establishing why it is that people need to listen to him. This is important. That's why he takes the time to say, Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This isn't arrogance. He's not like showing off, saying, like, I'm an apostle by the will of God. No, he's bringing clarity. And that's important because he knew that people were going to challenge if this was a message from God. And so that's why he's letting them know where this message comes from. It's because he was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. Now, oddly enough, even though this letter starts with Paul clearly identifying himself as the author, Paul being the author of this book is one of the hot debates of the day. Um, there are people, scholars, who don't believe that he wrote this book. They think a disciple of Paul actually wrote this book. And uh, this argument didn't show up until the 1800s, so that's relatively recent. And it's never really a great sign if something's new in church history. Um, but, uh, and I also have to note that the vast majority of the evangelical scholars would agree that this book was written by Paul, but um, the argument really stems from three things that are going on in the book of Ephesians that make people think, like, maybe this isn't Paul. And the first is that the content of the book of Ephesians is similar to the content of the book of Colossians. And so the idea being, they kind of view it as like, Paul wrote Colossians, and then because it's, there's so many similar phrases, so many similar things in Ephesians, what happened was it was someone who, who had learned under Paul, and he kind of copied over some things from Colossians, added some new Ephesians stuff, and then you know, put Paul's name on it. That's one of the reasons why people think that. The second reason is because uh, there is a different style of writing inside the book, 
And we'll be able to catch this stuff in English pretty easily, but it's really, really different when you study more Greek uh, writing and the styles involved in writing these letters. And because there's some different styles in Ephesians, people are like, that must not be Paul. Um, and the last reason why they think this is because it seems like Paul doesn't know these people. And that's because of verse uh, 15 in chapter 1. If you want to jump down there, it just says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So if Paul knew these people, you would expect him to say, because I have seen your faith in Jesus. And so because he's like hearing about them, it's like, wait, so Paul doesn't know who these people are. Maybe this isn't Paul at all. Maybe it's someone kind of representing Paul. Uh, those are the reasons why. Now, let me just present to you, I do, I do believe this. Paul wrote this book. Absolutely, I believe that. And I'm going to give you the reasons why. And, and it's important for this reason. Paul's speaking under the authority as being an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ. So it really matters to me if Paul's the one, if this someone saying that they're Paul or is this Paul? And here are the reasons why I believe it is Paul who wrote this book. First reason, the language is personal and specific. It's so personal, it's pretty hard to believe that someone's talking about Paul because it's, it speaks about his apostolic ministry, how it affected him as, as an apostle. He speaks about praying for other people. He speaks about his posture while he's praying for other people. It just doesn't really line up with someone talking about someone. It sounds very, very personal. Second reason, we just saw that verse, uh, chapter one, verse 15. Uh, that can easily be understood knowing that Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians seven years after departing Ephesus. So this makes perfect sense to me. You know, he's, he's in Ephesus, a lot of people get saved, the church starts, and then seven years go by. You don't think there's new converts? You don't think there's new people involved with the church? Absolutely, seven years is a long time. Um, and so with all that had changed, what he's saying is, I've heard of all that's been going on over there. And, and that's, what, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, I have no idea who these people are. He's just saying, there's been things going on and I've heard about it. Third reason, is this guy named Tychicus, <laughs> Tychicus, Ty, hey Ty, is your full name Tychicus? No, it's Tyler probably, no, is your full name Ty, is that it? All right, T-Y, that's a sweet name. Um, but for whoever this guy Tychicus was, I feel bad for him in middle school years, he probably didn't have super fun time, um, but Tychicus is the courier of both the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. This is significant because you'll, you guys will see at the end of the book, uh, Paul writes that Tychicus is the one who's going to take this letter. And uh, in Roman t Greco times, this was the way that the writer would affirm that it was real, that what, what happened was what he intended to happen. So he hands the letter to Tychicus. Tychicus shows up to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, and he says, here's the letter. And then within the letter, Paul says, Tychicus is coming. They're like, what's your name? And he's like, Tychicus. You guys see what it is? It's a verification process of like, okay, this is actually what Paul intended to happen. Now, if, if Tychicus takes the letter to the Colossians, and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's Paul's book, no problem. And yet over here, it's like, well, but someone else gave it to Tychicus for the Ephesians, and, if he, and Ty, Tychicus is fine just being like, oh yeah, there's nothing different with this one. It just doesn't make sense. If he's a courier of both these letters, and we don't have any problem accepting the book of Colossians as written by Paul, it's more consistent to understand it as also written by Paul. Next reason is that the early church fathers and other historical documents all affirmed it as Paul's writings. You'll see them reference it when Paul said this to the Ephesians. They have no debate. Like I said, this is a newer problem. This is a newer debate. And in the early church and historical documents, no one mentions it as a problem. And in regards to style, 
um, Paul was well-educated and capable of writing in different styles to add the emphasis that he desired. So this, this idea of like just because he uses a different writing style in Ephesians must mean that it's not him. I just don't think that's consistent at all with someone who's as educated as Paul was. He could have easily been like, oh, I'll, I'll write it this way to add this emphasis because every style is going to give you a different emphasis. And he has different things he wants to emphasize in the book of Ephesians than, say, the book of Romans or, or any of the other books he writes. There's an eph- emphasis he's wanting to bring, and so that answers that. And the last reason I'll, I'll add is that there's no literary precedent within Judaism for accepted pseudonymous names, which just basically means what I'm saying, that someone's writing with the other name, saying that they're Paul or representing Paul. And for all the Jews who had heard the good news of Jesus and they convert to Christianity, they would have never accepted a book that says it's by Paul and it's actually not by Paul. That would have never, why? Because there was no precedent inside of Judaism for it. So just all those reasons lead us to draw the conclusion, I'm just giving you the sport, Paul wrote this book. I don't think it's that hard to figure out. It starts with the word, Paul, here I am, I wrote this book. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I believe that he is the writer of the book. All right, so we've talked about Paul. Next thing we gotta talk about is where the verse leads. We gotta talk about Ephesus, because he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, When he says saints and then who are faithful, that's talking about one group of people. And so the saints, that means the holy ones. He's referring to Christians in Ephesus. Um, who are faithful, that, that means that they've believed in Christ Jesus. So one group of people who are made holy through the work of Jesus Christ because they've believed in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then it says, to those people who are in Ephesus. Now, I want you to look at your Bible and see if you have a footnote in verse 1. See if there's anything that points you to the bottom of the page. And my Bible says this, uh, some manuscripts omit in Ephesus, those two words. And maybe yours says that, maybe it doesn't, but um, that's kind of a big deal (laughs) because um, this is the only reference to the fact that this is written to the Christians in Ephesus. If we don't have verse one, there's nothing else in the rest of the book that lets us know that this was written to the Christians in Ephesus. So you kind of get there and you're like, well, some of the manuscripts don't have in Ephesus? Uh Uh-oh, like, what does that mean? What do we do with that? And I could just as easily just have skipped this whole thing and just been like, it's to the people of, in Ephesus. But I, I, just got, I want you guys to see how awesome it is, like what, what you're holding in your hands is. Uh, the book you're holding in your hands is really, really awesome. And um, so I'm going to explain what this means and how you can have confidence that, yes, this book is written, written to the Christians in Ephesus. So I want to start with this sentence because here, here's the main point. The message of the Bible has been preserved in such a way that nothing in all the history of written language comes close to its level of preservation. If you study how we have these texts, and and there's a study called textual criticism where they're lining up all these different manuscripts to to know what what the message of the Bible is, there is nothing like it for anything else like there is for the Bible. Um, And and people spend their whole life studying this, and it's like, you know, if you want to study something in the New Testament, we got hundreds of manuscripts, and then you're like, oh yeah, I believe that Aristotle said this, or Plato said this, and we have like, I don't know, five manuscripts, and everyone's like, yeah, that's great, and over here, it's like, the Bible has hundreds, and it's like, "What, what did the Bible mean to say? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. There is nothing like what we have in regards to the preservation of the message of the Bible, and now, I, I want you to know 
what you're holding in your hands, though. You need to understand what it is that you're holding in your hands because we are holding a translation of a copy of the original text. That's what's in your hands. And if you don't know that, maybe Satan's gonna use that to, to just you know, discourage you and put doubt in your mind. You need to understand what you're holding in your hands. Once you understand what it is and the study that's put into preserving the message, then it can set your heart at ease. And that's what I'm hopefully gonna help you guys just real quick talk about why it is that um, those words in Ephesus aren't in the early manuscripts. Now, here, here's the tricky thing about this. It's the early ones that don't have it. Five of them don't have it. What's tricky about that is normally within textual criticism, when you find a really old manuscript, you're like, that's the closest to the original. Because you expect that over time, little things are just gonna be, little mistakes are gonna happen as they're copying it from one piece of papyrus to the next. Um, and so that's what's tricky about the situation. You're like, why are the early ones the ones that don't have it? Well, um, I, it all comes from the fact that we have copies of copies of copies of copies. And if you're like me, maybe you're not, maybe you don't care about this question, I'm always thinking about questions like, why didn't God let us have the original? Why don't we have like the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote himself or had his scribe write himself? And uh, the Bible doesn't talk about this, but I'm just gonna give you guys two reasons that I feel pretty confident are good reasons why we don't have the originals. One is I absolutely believe we would be worshiping those pieces of paper. There would be people on this planet who they would be saying, wait, this is it? This is the actual papyrus of the book of Ephesians? And they're gonna think that the power is in the piece of paper and the ink, and that's not where the power is. The power is in the spirit who wrote this book. And I mean, this even happens today with Bibles. People kinda, they get so about the pages and the words, it's like, yes, that's God's word, but it's God's word. Don't forget the God part. Like, that's the reason why we're here, and we don't worship this book. We worship the God who wrote this book. And so if we had the real ones, I think we would worship the pieces of paper even more. And uh, second reason, and it's kind of counterintuitive, by us having all these copies instead of the original, if we had the original, that would mean that some individual at some point in history had the power to change the message of the book. Because we would have never known. If they would have been like, I have the original, and then they hand it to us, we could be missing a page, and we would have never known because that person had the power to alter the message forever, for the rest of history. We would have never been able to figure it out if they took that to their grave. So, interestingly enough, the best way to preserve the message of the Bible was for it to be written, for it to be copied quickly, many, many times, and then for the original to not exist. Isn't that beautiful? It's like so interesting, like that's the best way, and it's absolutely true. Even atheist scholars who don't believe the Bible admit that the message of the Bible is clear. It's, it's, now, you can debate if you wanna believe it or not, that's a separate conversation, but as far as the texts themselves, we know what the Bible meant to say. That's not up for grabs. What's up for grabs is, is it this word or is it this word? Is it this way of the sentence or is it that way? It's not altering the message of the Bible. So I have to present to you guys uh, evidence, and these are less, less reasons, four reasons why in Ephesus was in the original letter. And I'm taking the time to share this because it's significant if it's not to the people of Ephesus because we're actually gonna study the cultural context of the, if the, the city of Ephesus. And so if it's not to them, then what's the point of studying all this extra stuff of what's going on in Ephesus? So this is why it's so important to share this with you. First reason, the majority of the Greek manuscripts include it. So like I said, we're talking about five early manuscripts and Every other one has the words in Ephesus. 
So that leans us in the direction of like, okay, that's a pretty strong reason to believe that maybe there's something wrong with those five instead of assuming that all these other hundreds of manuscripts uh, have something wrong. So that leans in, in its favor. Second reason, there's a guy named Ignatius who's an early church father who understood Paul's letter to be written to the Ephesians and he's writing a letter to the Ephesians somewhere in the years 98 to 117 AD. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius he quotes the book of Ephesians, understanding they're going to know what I'm saying. They're going to know what I'm referring to because he accepted it and understood it as a letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. Third reason, there is precedent of scribes removing the name of the city it was written to in order to show that this letter was for all Christians and not just to the local ones. So what we find, this happens in the book of Romans, the exact same problem. You get to the verse seven in the book of Romans and some manuscripts don't have in Rome. They just like, it's just disappeared. And what we think happened is that there's these scribes who understand that these, these letters that are written from Paul aren't just letters. They're more than that. Yes, they are letters from Paul to these churches, but they're also inspired by the Holy Spirit and they're affirming them. And so they're saying these are, these are general, universal, Christian teaching principles. And so we're going to remove the name of the city they were intended so that everyone understands that that's what they are. So we see precedent of some scribes doing that in the book of Romans. So it's very reasonable to say, okay, there were some that did this. And specifically those early manuscripts, they come from the Alexandrian uh, family of manuscripts. And so because they're all together, they're most likely written in the land of Egypt, it would make sense that they would have done that. Because it's far from Ephesus, they're saying, hey, yes, it's from Paul to the Ephesians, but it's also applicable to us. So there's precedent for that. And the last one, uh, last reason is because if you don't have those two words, in Ephesus, in verse one, then the Greek sentence falls apart. It don't make no sense. <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens in the Greek. And um, when, when you're studying Greek, there are times where you, you, know, you say, is it this word, is it that word, based off the manuscripts, and you can figure it out based off the, the language, because you say, okay, this one actually works within the Greek language. If you try this, it doesn't even work, so therefore that's the one that's not correct. That's where some scribe made a little slip as they were writing that. Um, and so that's how we figure it out. And so in this case, it doesn't just make the sentence clunky, because sometimes clunky happens. Sometimes as preachers, many times as a preacher, I'll say a sentence, I'm like, that wasn't the best way of saying it, you know? And it can be clunky, but it made sense, and, that, and that's okay. So sometimes the, the, the language can be a little bit clunky, a little odd, but it, can, it, needs to be, um, it needs to make sense. And in this case, if you get rid of those two words, the, the sentence just falls apart. It doesn't work. All right, so that's why we can draw the conclusion that the words in Ephesus were on the original letter. It's a letter from Paul to the Christians who are in Ephesus. And now that we know that, then we can say, okay, now let's, let's, set, let's set the background here. Why, what's going on in Ephesus? Where is Ephesus, right? Um, where is, does it still exist today? So this is the background I wanna give you guys about Ephesus in the first century AD. These are just the main things I want you to know about this town. First, it was a major port city, so it's on the coast, and uh, the crossroads, it was also a crossroads city of Western Asia. Here's a map, so you guys can see where it is. The dark color is water, <laughs> and then the light color, you see the land. There's Jerusalem, and then Galatia's that area on that side, and then Asia Minor, and then there you see it, Ephesus on the coast, 
And it's a port city, but also any of the roads that were coming from the north, they, the, the road from the north ends at Ephesus, the road from the south goes to Ephesus, the road from the east also goes to Ephesus. It's not like today where we have all these roads and interstates. It was very different back then. There was a main road, and all those converge in Ephesus. So what does that tell us? It's a busy town. And it also tells us the second thing we need to know is that it's a big town, a population somewhere between 200,000 to 250,000, and that includes uh, people in the greater area, because there's a wall surrounding the city. It's not just people inside the city, it's anyone around it. Just like we would say, I don't know if we use the term, the greater Denver area. Did we say that here? No? Okay, well, in like most major cities, they would call it the greater Denver area. What that means is we're including Boulder, we're including Castle Rock, we're including Aurora, Centennial, all these towns that are, are not technically Denver, but you would say, I'm, still, I'm from Denver if you're one of the, from one of those towns because it's understood that it's kind of close enough. And so the greater area of Ephesus is somewhere around a quarter of a million people, which in ancient times, this is huge. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. That's about half what Colorado Springs is, just in case you wanted to kind of put a size on it. So Colorado Springs were like half a million people. So it's about half the size. And uh, third thing is that it was a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic city. It has people who are Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and Jews. So as we go through the book, anytime it talks about Gentiles, it's talking about those other three groups of people, and there's Jews and Gentiles, and it's a multi-ethnic city. Fourth is that it was a religiously pluralistic city. Many worship of many, many gods, like all Roman cities under Roman rule, they were all like this. They just had hundreds of gods and things that you worshiped. And, and it was also common practice that you could believe as many or as little of those as you wanted. It wasn't like they contradicted each other in their minds. You could just pick as many gods and just believe all these things. But specifically, they were known, Ephesus is, is known for the worship of the goddess Artemis. Um, in, in Greek, that would have been the goddess Diana. And um, this was a big deal in Ephesus. The temple was massive. It was so huge that it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's been destroyed since, but there's still a, a little bit left. And here's a picture of what's left of the temple of Artemis. And uh, there's one pillar, some foundational stones there. And you guys can kind of see that little road. So that gives you a sense of what a car, the size of a car would have been. Now think, they built that stuff without cranes. Like, I don't know how they built this thing, but it, it was massive. This is a very, very large temple. It's part of the culture. That's the thing you need to understand. If you're from Ephesus, you know of Artemis. If, if you hear of Ephesus, you hear of Artemis. These things are intertwined culturally. Um, that temple that was built, it was actually the main banking center of the city. So just imagine for one second, let's say that New Life Church, this building right here with the big blue roof, is where everyone has to come in Colorado Springs to get any banking done. See, if, if that was the case, everyone would know of New Life Church. Every single member of this, you know, everyone, every single citizen of Colorado Springs would know of New Life Church because they have to come here. And that's kind of what it's like in Ephesus. Everybody knows about the Temple of Artemis because they got to go do their business there. And, um, and there's also like Olympic-style games held in the honor of the goddess Artemis. There's these parades that happen twice a year that just shut down the city and everybody had to focus on that. So if you lived at all near Ephesus, you knew about the worship of the goddess Artemis. It's very, very significant. You guys will see why as we go through the book. 
And the last thing is that Ephesus was known for the practice of magic. And I put magic in quotes just so you guys understand. We're not talking about magic tricks. We're not talking about, you know, sleight of hand. And side note, I, I was pretty good at magic tricks growing up. That's true. And there's home videos to prove it. So next time we're sitting with a deck of cards, ask me for some magic tricks. Um, so no, that's not what we're talking about here. Ephesus is known for magic. Magic meaning they um, they're basically think of it as like superstition. There's incantations, spells. Um, people would buy charms and they would wear them, knowing that if I wear this charm, then then my business will prosper. And if if I wear this charm and eat these three Doritos, and my team wins the Super Bowl, that kind of stuff. That's what magic is. And, um, and this was common practice in the city of Ephesus. They also have a hyper sense of the spiritual. Everything's spiritual when you practice magic. The, it's, it's thinking everything is kind of like what I see, and then on top of that, there's a spiritual realm, and so my incantations, my charms, they're affecting the spiritual realm. And this was common practice all the way to the point that even the Jewish population that lived in the town, they had bought into it. They were practicing these, these magic you know, they had magic books and incantations, all this stuff. Even the Christians who had recently been converted were still practicing magic in the, in the city of Ephesus. And we're going to see how that turns out here in, in a little bit. And um, so just look at that list. And here's, here's what I want you to notice. If that's the city Paul's writing to, then I would expect a few things. First, you know, if it's a large city you know, very popular, then I would expect the letter to be less specific because Paul is not writing to just one congregation. It's not like what's happening here. You know, he wouldn't just say, here's the church in Ephesus. We're talking about many, many house churches in a city this big. Many house churches, so this letter was gonna be circulated through all of them. So the reason why the book of Ephesians is less specific than some of his other letters is for that reason. Look how big the city is, who knows how many groups, how many people, and so that's why the message is gonna be less specific. Then, if this is a cosmopolitan city, I would expect Paul to have to address unity, because there's Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and Jews all believing the message of Jesus Christ. That's gonna cause some problems, right? There's gonna be some clash of culture inside the church, so I would expect them to address unity. Then if it's religiously pluralistic and they all worship Artemis and it's, you know, everything's about this goddess Artemis, then I would expect Paul to talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ isn't just another God. Jesus Christ is the one true God and he reigns supreme over everything as we've sung about today. I'd expect Paul to talk about that to that city. And the last thing is if they're talking about, you know, the practice of magic, I would expect Paul to address the spiritual realm and what's happening in regards to the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. And all those things I just said is exactly what the book of Ephesians is. Isn't that amazing? Like the exact thing that you would expect Paul to write to them about is what the whole book is about. Those are the themes. So we've talked about Paul. We've talked about Ephesus. Now the last thing we need to do is let's talk about Paul in Ephesus. How did this whole thing get started? Well, it starts in the book of Acts, chapters 18 and 19. And uh, because of time, I'm not going to be able to read that whole thing verse by verse. But um, let me just give you the summary. Here's like the spark notes. Do we even, does that even exist anymore? I don't know. You didn't hear that from me. (laughs) That doesn't exist. Um, So here's kind of like the summary of what goes on. So Acts chapter 18, let me just turn there real quick. So this guy named Apollos shows up 
in Ephesus, and he's like a great speaker, and he had, you know, he would speak in public in the synagogue, and he had believed the message of Jesus, so he starts preaching that, but he's got a few things wrong, and so these people named Priscilla and Aquila are like, hey, Apollos, come over here. I got to teach you the way of Jesus more accurately. You need to understand some things, because the gospel is just unfolding before their eyes. Jesus, you know, he hasn't, he just left earth not too long ago, and so Priscilla and Aquila have to teach him some things more accurately. Then Apollos leaves, and Paul shows up in the town, and he teaches people about the Holy Spirit, and what the baptism of John was, and what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and, uh, and he asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. They have no idea, so he, he lays hands on these people, and, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues, they start prophesying right then and there, and then Paul goes to the synagogues, and he starts preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God in these large synagogues in the city of Ephesus. And what's unique is that he spends two years, that's what the, that's what the book of Acts tells us, two, two years teaching. This is not like Paul. Paul normally spent like 18 months in Corinth, three months here, two months here. It's it's unique that he spent this much time, a total of something like three years in Ephesus teaching and spreading the gospel. And um, then there's this itinerant Jewish exorcist named Sceva. And uh, so just always remember the story. It's Skeevy Skeva. That's how you're going to remember, okay? So Skeevy Skeva shows up. And what this guy does is he, would, he was supposed to be the one who would cast out demons. But it's not like, you know, praying for someone that the power of the Spirit would cast out that demon in the name of Jesus. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was buying into these magic practices. So they would just like sprinkle a little bit of this, sprinkle a little bit of that. And they see what Paul is teaching. And you know what they do? They just add Jesus' name as in like, you know, bonus material. Now as we do this exorcism, we're just going to now throw the name of Jesus. And so the seven sons of Sceva go to this man who has an evil spirit, and they throw in the name of Jesus, and the evil spirit speaks back, and he's like, "Uh, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but we don't know who you guys are. And the spirit just goes nuts, and this one man with this evil spirit beats these guys up, they end up leaving bleeding and naked is what the Bible says. So they leave seven men, seven men all beat up by this one guy with the evil spirit. And so everyone in the town freaks out like you and I would if we would have seen this. So everybody's freaking out in the town of Ephesus like what is going on? And, uh, and then so much so that the Christians who had believed the message of either Apollos or Paul when they brought the good news of Jesus those Christians then repent of their practices of magic. And they grab their books, they run into their house, they grab their books of practicing magic, and they just do a bonfire. Like, they just start burning them all. And there's tons and tons of books. This isn't just like, oh, you know, I repent. No, we're talking about like in the streets. The Bible says that it was done in front of everyone. And so this is a spectacle. This is a powerful move of God. And, um, and Paul, God's using Paul to do extraordinary miracles during this time. It, it actually says that if, if Paul touched a handkerchief, they could take that handkerchief and put that handkerchief on someone who was sick, and just that would heal them. Because God was affirming that his power was on Paul, and he's, he's affirming the ministry of Paul through these extraordinary miracles. Then... Basically what happens in Ephesus is there's like a riot. Everyone just starts going nuts. They're like, what is happening? What is this gospel of Jesus Christ? And uh, the riot really starts because the gospel of Jesus is bad for the business of the temple of Artemis. And they're starting to lose money, which 
Uh, side note, that, that would mean, I don't know how many people are believing in this season, but I would say quite a few. I would say thousands. If it's enough to affect the business of the Temple of Artemis, Artemis, then yeah, there's a lot of people starting to believe the gospel. So they're like, we don't like that you're bad for our business, and we don't like that you're not teaching people to worship the goddess of Artemis. So there's thousands of people who come into the theater, and they're all like screaming and confused, and what are we mad about? I don't know, but keep screaming, like that kind of vibe. <laughs> then this guy gets up, and he's like, everybody calm down. And they're like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Something like that paraphrased. Um, and, uh, and so then Paul then leaves after this riot. And that right there is the beginning of the church in Ephesus. What I just told you, that's the summary of it. It's a powerful move of the Holy Spirit that disrupts an entire city. The gospel of Jesus Christ disrupts people's lives. And that makes me think of us. <laughs> If we say we believe the gospel, but the gospel's never disrupted anything in our lives, then we probably don't believe the same gospel. The gospel will disrupt your life. There's a way of living that you have. You're like, this is my way of living, and when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, things are gonna start to change, because you believe everything that Jesus taught, and there's no way your life lines up with that, because if not, then you would be strong enough to save yourself, but you needed Jesus, you need the way of Jesus, and so that's gonna disrupt your life because the gospel of Jesus Christ disrupts our life in the most awesome way. And it's because of that gospel that then Paul can sum up his message of the gospel in verse two, back to the book of Ephesians. Verse two says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's summing up the message. Here it is, grace to you. Grace in you. This is Paul's favorite word to use to sum up what God did. God did what we did not earn. God did what we did not deserve. And it's grace and peace because it's grace from God that brings peace with God. We weren't at peace with God, but then because of his grace, now we can be at peace with God and we can be at peace with others. That's the message he brings. And it comes from God the Father, yes, but then he adds, and the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's, of, it's about his death and the burial of his son and the resurrection of his son. It's both those. So we've talked about Paul, we've talked about Ephesus, we've talked about Paul in Ephesus, and now we're ready to just start diving into this book. And I just wanna close by answering this question that maybe you've been thinking, which is, Eddie, why do you believe this, this book, this letter, is significant to us here today? Why would we say this is the one we're going to study here at New Life Young Adults? Well, the reason for that is because in Revelation chapter 2, the Apostle John um, has a conversation with Jesus, and Jesus tells him something about the church in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is written somewhere around 61, 62 book of Revelation is written somewhere around 96. So some 30 years after, 30 years after this move of God that I just told you about, 30 years after that, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And he was telling him, you need to repent of this. Go back to that move of the Spirit. Remember what it was that I did to save you and you need to remember that first love, and it only took 30 years for that to get messed up. 
That's a big deal to me. You know why? Because in 30 years, this is New Life Church. You're looking at it right now. In 30 years, it's these people. And if we forget the message, you think something similar couldn't happen here? Of course it could. There's no guarantee this church will exist in 30 years. Now, by the grace of God, I want it to. And if we stick to the message of the book of Ephesians, it will. But if we leave our first love, why would we expect anything different to happen here? So we know how it started. Let me tell you how it's going. Modern day Ephesus is in Turkey, a place where less, listen, less than 0.1% people even profess to be Christians. There's more people that would rather not answer the survey, 1.7%. Way more people would rather say, I don't even wanna answer the question than people who would say, I believe in Jesus Christ. There's nothing there. Clearly they did not repent. They did not go back to their first love. And so what's behind this series is I want us to not be that. We are the next generation of New Life Church and we need to remember the message of the gospel that Paul wrote to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. Grace in you, grace through you to the praise of his glory. This is gonna be awesome because God is awesome. So let's stand together and let me pray for us. Father, I know that there's things we don't even understand, we can't even imagine that you're about to do. You know every single person in this room by name. You keep their tears in a bottle. You know how many hairs are on their head. You know them more than anyone does. And you also know what is to come. And so what I'm asking God is that you would use this series for the praise of your glory that whatever we're learning, it wouldn't just be knowledge, but it would be knowledge that stirs our heart and our affection for Jesus Christ. We wanna be better worshipers by the end of this series, that we're not just gaining information, we wanna gain wisdom. We wanna know what it is that you reveal to us, that we would be able to live out these principles. For you're worthy of that, God. <laughs> you're everything to us. We don't have anything without your grace, and we can never have your grace through us if it's not in us. And so we submit to you and we come before you with open hands here at the precipice about what you're just about to do. So Lord, with open hands, we begin tonight focusing our hearts on you, focusing our hearts to worship you as a God who's been gracious to us and who's worthy of all the glory. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.